Hello there. Thank you for downloading this 3CR podcast. 3CR is a listener-supported radio station located in Melbourne, Australia, and we rely on the support of people like you to keep going. And During the month of June, we're asking you to dip into your pockets and chuck us a couple coins just to keep the radical radio pumping out across the airwaves 24-7, 365 and a bit. Uh, if you want to donate, it is really easy. You can pop in and visit us at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. You can call 03 10 to 6, Monday to Friday. Or you can go to givenow.com.au slash CR slash and make a donation directly to the Yeah Passaran crowd raiser. We'd really appreciate it. Now on with the show. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people. On both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by... Journalist and note taker Molly Conger, who you may know on Twitter as at Socialist Dog Mom. Thanks for joining us, Molly. Yeah, glad to be here. So, Molly, I guess people who follow you might know that on the, your feed they can find a bit of socialism, they can find copious amounts of your beautiful sausage dogs, and they can also. That's them. <laughs> Our favorite. guys. Sorry. And they can also find copious amounts of notes on Charlottesville council meetings. Could you tell us a little bit about why you started covering the council? Yeah, sorry. It's evening time here. So my neighbors are like coming and going a lot and the dogs are very vigilant. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. So I, I started covering Charlottesville city council meetings in late 2017. So after Unite the Right, it was, you know, it was, I didn't start out doing it for anyone else, right? It was not my intention to I don't know. None of this was on purpose. But sort of after Unite the Right, I, you know, I was not really involved in politics. I was not I was not really checked in in that way. And I was sort of left thinking like, what happened here? How did this, how did this happen? Who let this happen? And what are we going to do now? So I started going to council meetings. And I guess in, in you know, millennial fashion, the, the way that I was sort of filtering and organizing that experience for myself was by posting through it. And I just never stopped. <laughs> When you talk about, you know, what happened and how was it allowed to happen, maybe just to remind our listeners, could you, you know, tell us what it is specifically you're referring to? So Unite the Right was a Nazi rally held here in Charlottesville in August of 2017. So years ago now, but it's it's made fresh all over again with these new court cases. But it was a permitted event, right? A local guy, Jason Kessler, got a permit to hold this rally and he had all these, you know, far-right speakers, these Nazi podcasters. The city pulled the permit. There was a lawsuit. And sort of at the 11th hour, the permit was reinstated. The rally did not 
go well. There was a lot of violence and unlawful assembly was declared. The police cleared the park. The speakers never actually got to give their speeches. Um, And then early in the afternoon that day, James Alex Fields drove his car through a crowd of people, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens of people. So it, you know, it was it was catastrophic, right? It, it made international news. I'm sure even in Australia, you've seen the photographs of you know, bodies on the pavement. It's all very grim. But so it, it's, you know, it was, I think the sad thing is if it happened now, I don't think it would make the same impact, right? Because things have gone so far off the rails that one person dying wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But <laughs> it, it, I think in, in many ways, it sort of, marked the beginning of of the decline into the current state of political violence in the United States. And Molly, was that the incident which resulted in Trump making reference to very fine people? Yes, that was, that was the, the precipitating event to the very fine people comment, which keeps coming up. I was, you know, I was trolling the, the internet for news about these recent prosecutions. And there's new articles even just this week about Biden bringing that up again, the, the very fine people comment. And yet you say that the reaction now, six years later, would be quite different, you think? I mean, that seems very cynical, but I I do think so. I mean, do you remember during the, maybe you don't, maybe this news didn't even make it overseas, in 2020, during the the uprising here across the United States after the murder of George Floyd, someone was killed in a similar car attack, and it it was sort of a blip in the radar. Yeah. It was in, God, I don't even remember, it was in the Pacific Northwest, summer. Yeah, I, I also remember reading references to various state legislatures dealing with responding to bills that would, in a sense, decriminalise or render more lawful that kind of activity. Right. Several, I think several states did pass bills sort of, you know, making it harder to prosecute that kind of thing that if, you know, if people are blocking the roadway and you happen to hit them, then, then you're not liable. I don't know that any of those have been put to the test. And that wouldn't have applied here regardless because that road was technically closed when he drove down it. He drove around a barrier that had been moved. But yeah, no, there, there is a, a hunger, right? There's, there is this grievance complex, right? That these people are in my way and I should be allowed to hurt them. The law should encourage me and, and not penalize me if I do that. Yeah. And I think that's a bit of an age old issue. I'm just sort of reminded as we speak, there's a number of sort of Australian conservative politicians who have given, you know, their reasons for it, inspired them to become conservatives in the first place. And often it was a, a Vietnam moratorium march that stopped them from <laughs> going where they wanted to. And that angered them so much they pursued a career of, you know. It's so, it's so childish, right? I mean, it's like when, when things were briefly closed here. I mean, you guys did it, I think, a little bit more properly in Australia, but nothing was ever really closed here during COVID. But like being denied access to Applebee's even briefly caused people to just go completely insane. Well, it's in the Constitution, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's yeah. chilies they put in the Constitution. Uh, okay. <laughs> the night before the rally proper in Charlottesville, there was also an incident at a statue which – made news also, there were quite striking images of people with flaming tiki torches. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened with that? Yes. So, you know, Unite the Right, the rally Unite the Right, right? That was the permanent event the morning of the 12th on the Saturday. But the whole weekend was was violent. So the night before the rally, which was in, this I guess gets into a little bit of confusing sort of jurisdictional jargon, right? The, the rally was in downtown Charlottesville, which is an independent city. 
The University of Virginia is very nearby. It's, you know, very strongly associated with the city of Charlottesville, but the bulk of the campus is actually in the county of Albemarle. And that'll, that'll be relevant when it comes to these prosecutions, right? So the night before this rally, they all got together to, you know, pregame, show their power, meet up and do this march through the University of Virginia. And so they met up in a field and they lit their little torches and they marched through the campus, which was mostly empty because it was summer, but there were students living in the lawn rooms, the the, the lawn in front of the rotunda. Um, so there were, there were students present living there. They were marching by people's homes. And when they got to the statue of Thomas Jefferson, which is, I think, very confusing for people because the Unite the Right rally was about the Lee and Jackson statues, the Confederate general statues in downtown Charlottesville. But so on that Friday night, the statue they converged at was a statue of Thomas Jefferson, the founder of the University of Virginia. And when they got to the statue, there was a very small group of counter-protesters. I mean, maybe a dozen people, but two dozen tops. It was a very small group of people who were at the base of the statue. And these hundreds of men with tiki torches surrounded them and they were trapped. There was no way for them to escape. They were surrounded by these men with burning objects, screaming slurs, screaming Jews will not replace us. There were punches thrown. People were hit with tiki torches. People had lighter fluid thrown on them. People were maced. I mean, to say there was no violence that night, as, as some of the sort of right-wing commentary has outright stated, is a lie. I mean, there there was violence. People were hurt. During the, There was a civil lawsuit about the rally that just wrapped up a year and a half ago now. And some of the people who were at the base of the statue that night testified that they thought they would die, right? That and so that, that'll become relevant with the, this intent to intimidate aspect of these new charges, right? That simply burning a torch is not illegal. That's true. If you are using that burning object to place someone in fear for their life, that's not protected free speech. That's a crime. And the, I mean, these people really, one, one of the, the young men who testified in that civil trial, he said, you know, standing there surrounded and trapped, he thought to himself, I have so much to live for. Right. And that means that God, that trial was hard to listen to. I mean, really hearing hearing those people talk about those moments where they were being punched and kicked and pushed and they thought they would be crushed against the statue because these people with these flaming torches were pressing towards them. And so it was it was it was very awful. It was very violent. The police did not intervene. Um, you can see in some of the videos, the cops are just kind of standing there watching this happen. And then as it sort of naturally comes to its conclusion, then the cops move in and get everybody out of the way and clear clear the scene. But they allowed this to happen. So, Molly, you've alluded to these new charges that there is a section in the Code of Virginia, a burning object on property of another or a highway or other public place with intent to intimidate, which is a class six felony. And what's the origin of this? I assume this is some sort of clan based legislation. Right. So that code section, the this specific subsection is, is a recent amendment and that will also become relevant in this in these cases, I think. But it is. It's anti-Klan legislation. It was originally just about cross burnings. And I think the code section was originally passed in 1950, although I'll have to double check on that. But you know, right, this is an older law. I imagine not every state had to pass anti-Klan laws, but in Virginia, we did. I don't know if Australian listeners are familiar with the Klan and cross burnings, right? That, you know, these, the, these guys get on their little white hoods and they burn a cross in the, you know, on a black family's front lawn to intimidate them. Right. So that's that's the origin of this, this using a burning object to do ethnic intimidation. Thankfully, we don't have a, a clan <laughs> proper, but we do have some very silly boys who like to do a little cross barbecue every now and then. <laughs> it's not funny. I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just grim that that's America's cultural export. 
but right. So this code subsection is not just about cross burning. It's about burning any object with the intent to intimidate. So it doesn't have to be a cross. It doesn't have to be a giant wooden swastika. Any object set ablaze for the purpose of intimidating another is a crime under this code subsection. And I think you'd be hard pressed to say that there's not a like a wealth of evidence that this is what was happening on the night. Right. I think this is one of the clearest cases you could possibly bring under this statute, right? That, you know, some of the reaction has been, well, how can you prove intent, right? The courts do that every day. Intent is an element of so many crimes, right? That the, the defendant's intent is, you know, is inferred by the jury in crimes every day. But in this case, the evidence is, I mean, you couldn't ask for more evidence, right? You have these discord chats for months leading up to it where they're talking about what they're going to do. You have video from a thousand angles, right? That some of them are wearing their own body cams, they're live streaming, there's news footage, like there's footage from every angle of them explicitly stating, narrating their intentions while they're doing it, right? They're swinging the torches at people, hitting them with the flaming object. So, you know, physical violence is not required for this charge. You don't have to have actually hurt someone. But, the, you know, the footage of people actually doing that really does sort of add to the – it bolsters the claim that the, the intimidation was intentional. And the intent is an element of this charge, right? So some of the pushback against these prosecutions has cited a Supreme Court case from 2001, Virginia v. Black, which was a cross-burning case. The Supreme Court held in that case that simply burning a cross – is not prima facie evidence of intent, right? That the 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 act itself does not carry that, right? That the simply setting the cross on fire does not mean you had a specific intention. So the code section was amended that you're following to be consistent with that ruling. And so now the intent is a required element of the charge. So, you know, all these people saying, well, Virginia, Virginia v. Black makes these prosecutions unconstitutional. It doesn't. It doesn't. The law was amended to be consistent with the ruling. Molly, it's now six years later and these charges are just now, as I understand it, being brought. What explains that you know, delay in bringing charges? The prosecutor at the time, the Admiral County Commonwealth's attorney, I don't know why Virginia calls it that, the prosecutor is called a Commonwealth's attorney. Robert Tracy, who was the prosecutor at the time, declined to bring the charges. He wasn't confident in his ability to make the case. He didn't think it was applicable. He wasn't interested in doing it. He was just kind of a bad lawyer. I mean... <laughs> He just wasn't very good at his job, which is why he did not keep the job. He lost the election in 2019. And his successor, Jim Hingley, during the campaign, this was one of the issues he he went after Tracy over. He was saying, you know, why why didn't you prosecute these cases? You know, this was a huge failure to the community. And, you know, if I'm elected, I will do that. He was elected in 2019. I don't know why he waited four years, four more years after that. But it looks like he is trying to keep that promise. Did the university take a position? on the matter? (laughs) The university has been extremely cowardly on the matter. They have not been very helpful. There's been a lot of, God, the term gaslighting in this context doesn't really feel good. (laughs) But, you know, they were, they were, the university did not take responsibility for this. Um, And I think had they pushed, had the university put, you know, put their weight behind wanting to see something come of this, it would have happened sooner, but they didn't. Because these were students that were being attacked, right? Yes. A lot of them were undergraduate students at the University of Virginia. Some of them were community members, but many of them were undergraduate students, right? So these were – the university had, had some burden to protect them, right, on on the campus that they paid to attend, but they did not. And what about the local council? What was its position? 
So because the University of Virginia is in Albemarle County, the city of Charlottesville couldn't do anything. And that's that's actually sort of an interesting question, right? Because so two months later, and this I, this one didn't get a lot of press because it was very small and very brief, but in October of 2017, Richard Spencer came back. He came back with a small group of guys. They had the torches, and they went to a park in downtown Charlottesville with the torches, right? You know, because I don't know if you've heard that leaked audio of him on the night of of the rally where he's having that meltdown screaming that like they ruined his day and he's going to keep coming back and he's going to make us all suffer for it. Um, So he did. He did try to come back in October. And the reason those cases were not prosecuted, the prosecutor in the city of Charlottesville at the time said, I could make a case for the UVA torch march, but that's not my jurisdiction, right? He could not prosecute those cases because they were outside his jurisdiction. But he said what happened in the city in October is functionally different because there were no victims. They marched in an empty park. So the difference is that there were people who were trapped, who were being menaced. That's what makes it a crime. So when Richard Spencer came to that park in downtown Charlottesville two months later, there were no victims. It was an empty park. So that was not prosecutable. But the city was the city did explore it, right? The the city prosecutor looked into it. There was no case to be made. So I think had that torchlight had had the August march occurred in the city, it would have been prosecuted, I think, by Chapman. Molly, not to be too casserole, but I think there's often an argument that the police, for all their faults, one of their <laughs> functions is to uh, you know, enforce laws as they see crimes being committed. And so I think you could make the argument that as they witnessed this crime happening, perhaps they could have taken action. (laughs) Could you speak a little bit about sort of the intelligence failures? Obviously, they might not have had this anti-Klan law on their mind as they were watching this happening, but perhaps they could have known about it if there'd been slightly more intelligence passed along. Sure. And I I mean, so again, in America, the police do not actually have a duty to intervene ever, right? Like the, a cop could watch someone walk up to you and shoot you in the head and they he has no obligation to do anything about that, right? So whether they knew about that law or not, I mean, as they were watching this happen, they were watching people get punched. They were watching people get assaulted. They know that's a crime and they chose not to intervene for whatever reason. And legally, they did not have to. I don't love that, but that is that is the law of the land here. Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is if there had been more intelligence, because it seemed that there were, you know, the, the plans to bring torches was you know well established online, and presumably someone in law enforcement knew about it. They could have they, gotten to they did in before the point before people were being punched, right? And you know, I'm sure they. I'm sure they would tell you that it's such a gray area that they didn't want to err on the side of restricting speech. Personally, I I think that is bullshit. Cops love restricting speech. Cops love intervening in people's exercise of free speech. And so the fact that they didn't is noteworthy. No, but they did know, right, that that this march was going to occur. The march organizers reached out to the UVA police a few hours before it happened. People knew. People knew this was happening, and they allowed it to happen. Now, Molly, you've written a number of articles about the various people being charged with these offences six years later in a series called Burning Hate. Could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that? Yeah, so I, I've been meaning to start sort of, you know, an, another place to keep my writing for a long time, sort of some, 
so I do I do the bulk of my work on Twitter, which seems so silly and so embarrassing to say, right? It's it's you know I, I do my meeting minute live tweets on there, and I love the interactive nature of that because when I'm creating these sort of real time documentation of a meeting, I love being able to interact with people here in the city as as they're experiencing the meeting too and having a little back and forth. I love that, but it's not a great place to keep information forever, and it's not a great place to flesh out an idea with a little nuance. And so I've been thinking for a long time about starting something with a with a little more substance, something a little more permanent, something that's mine, something that Elon Musk doesn't own. <laughs> and so this, you know, this newsletter was sort of in the back of my mind for a long time, and when it came time to write about these cases, I realized now's the time. Now I have to, I have to do this now because these stories need a place to live together, to be fleshed out and to be more permanent. So the, the newsletter itself, in, in a broader sense, is not just about these cases. That's dominating it right now, just logistically. But you know, over the last few years, covering these, you know, these cases that grew out of Unite the Right and sort of branching out from there and sort of the broader white supremacist space in the United States, covering these cases, you know, sitting through these trials, you know, I've started to realize this is not a great tool, right? That the law is not really equipped to combat this. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's surreal to watch, you know, genuine evil sit in a courtroom and everything, everyone just has to sort of act like it's normal, right? There's this, this decorum, there's this script, there's this procedure, but like, are we, are we fixing this problem? <laughs> and so the, the overall thrust of the newsletter is, you know, how are the courts dealing with violent white supremacy? And so right now what I'm writing about is these cases. So these cases first started getting indicted in February. And so we only have five so far. I suspect there will be more. They're fascinating cases, right? Not not just because of the the striking imagery of the torches, right? That or the, the long delay in charging them, the obscure code section. I think, you know, for as many people saw those pictures, right? Those pictures went around the world. Everyone saw those pictures with the torches. But those still frames of them, you know, standing with their torches looking looking powerful and angry, that's not the whole story, right? That there's so much more to that. And so in writing about these cases, I've been going over the foot. I spent a hundred hours already just going frame by frame through all the available footage and isolating individual moments and sort of tracing the path of individual actors, right? Because there's, in, in the case like this, where it's a mob of people enacting something, I think we lose sight of the individual actors, right? That this was just a, a large scale demonstration that got out of hand. But when you slow it down and you look at it frame by frame, and you know, in, in an individual prosecution, it is about individual responsibility. That this was not just undifferentiated violence. This was not just chaos. You can trace the path of individuals as they make choices within this melee. And if you track it back to their social media, you can track, you know, all summer, these people planning to do these things, coming here, buying the accessories that they use to carry out these acts of violence. And I want to tease apart the idea that this was just this was just chaos, right? It's just something that happened. No, there were individual actors who made this happen. And I want I want to sort of pick that apart. Uh, Molly, in terms of the both the experience and I guess the fate of those who participated in August 2017, can you say anything in general about the effects of what happened? Richard Spencer, as I understand, is no longer such a, you know, the big man on campus, so to speak. Some of the more obscure figures, it seems, have, well, faded back into obscurity. What what can you say about the, I guess, overall impact of what happened? I mean, it was not a successful day for them, right? <laughs> they didn't get to give their speeches. The rally ended with a hate crime murder. I mean, that's, 
that's hard to come back from, right? Even if you love hate crimes. But like you said, you know, Richard Spencer is ruined. There was that civil lawsuit, the Sines v. Kessler lawsuit. So several of the people who were injured, a, a large law firm supported this suit representing them against the organizers of the rally for a conspiracy to violate civil rights. And they won the suit in, in late 2021. They'll never collect the damages. But I think the impact of that suit of dragging these guys through this court process for years, it really impacted their ability to continue organizing, to continue having money. So that I think was disruptive for those individuals, which I think is a net gain. I don't know that it's a scalable strategy, but as far as the individual actors who organized that rally, yeah, a lot of them are ruined, right? I mean, Matt Heimbach had that affair with his mother-in-law, and then he got divorced, and the traditionalist worker party fell apart. Richard Spencer's divorce bankrupted him. I mean, he says that. He says he's broke. He has family trust fund money. He just personally doesn't have any more money. But he's gone quiet. Identity Europa doesn't exist anymore. Patriot Front, I think, came out the winner, right, of, of those groups. Vanguard America was sort of its, its predecessor group. Vanguard America was present at Unite the Right. And because James Fields was with them that day, they had to rebrand to escape the stain of the murder. And Patriot Front's still going strong. Patriot Front is still causing a lot of problems here in the U.S. But I think that's one of the only groups from that day that's still particularly active. I mean, League of the South is still around, but that's just a bunch of boomers. Perhaps the argument could be made that the prize of getting to sit in the back of a U-Haul van with a bunch of sweaty guys <laughs> in khakis is not the greatest prize of all time. No, no, they're they're not they're not having a great time. You know, I think there was some of those leaked chats indicate that maybe they're getting a little bit of carbon monoxide poisoning back in the U-Haul. They're like barfing and passing out. Molly, you mentioned earlier that, that there's been a bit of historical revisionism around the, the torchlight rally, that it was a peaceable affair, like the Skokie, Illinois Nazi rally. <laughs> Could you tell us what the reaction has been from, I guess, what we might call mainstream conservatism, and also what the reaction has been from the more open white nationalist right? The interesting thing is there hasn't been as much reaction as I thought, right? That like a lot of this, a lot of what I would call like normal right-wing publications aren't really touching it. So, you know, obviously the extremist right-wing, they're outraged. They're, they, you know, this is so unfair. This is unconstitutional. This is communist violence against them. This is a Soros-funded prosecutor. It's, you know, standard fare. So I was kind of surprised to see National Review going to bat for it. They're one of the few sort of less, I don't know, it was interesting to see them take a similar tact as 4chan, is I guess what I'm saying, because I, I I didn't see other outlets really going out on that limb. But no, I think that a lot of people who only saw the still photographs do believe that it was not violent, because obviously, you know, the next day someone was murdered, and so they remember the murder, and they think, well, there was no violence the night before because nobody died, but dying is not the only way you can suffer violence, so to say that it was peaceful, I think, is, is a real slap in the face to the people who were there, the people who were injured. And it shows a, a lack of curiosity because the videos exist. There is there is ample video evidence of a violence occurring. And I, you made a reference to, uh, to Dan McLaughlin's piece in National Review where he says it was it was peaceful like the march in Skokie, Illinois. So the, the Nazis v. Skokie was a famous Supreme Court case in the United States, right, where this, the American Nazi Party – won the right to have a march in a town in Illinois where a lot of Holocaust survivors had settled. So there's a large Jewish community, particularly people who had survived the Holocaust living in this community in Illinois. And the Nazis wanted to march there. And the town said, I don't think so. And the Supreme Court said, you have to let them. 
but they never actually did march. So to say that it was peaceful, I think, is is confusing because it did not happen. Mm. Perhaps just a bit of an ahistoricity on the part of Dan McLaughlin. I don't know if anyone could ever have accused him of that. <laughs> Molly, just finally, in the last presidential election, we saw Mayor Pete take his tilt of the presidency. Do you think we could one day hope for a similar effort from Mayor Mike? Oh, my God. You mean Mike Signer? Yes. Our former mayor, Mike Signer, who's now in-house counsel for Airbnb? No, his political career is ruined. He he wanted that, right? He was such a climber. He was really hoping he could sort of pivot from this, you know, God, he had the stupid press conference earlier in 2017 before all of this, you know, saying Charlottesville's the capital of the resistance, right? That sort of Trump resistance blue wave shit. No, but so my, Mike Signer was, I think, really hoping to parlay that into state office and then something more. But he he fumbled the bag. He's over. He's not running for anything. What a shame. I know. It's really devastating. He was a real piece of shit. <laughs> Well, Molly, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find your work, you have a Patreon at patreon.com slash socialistdogmom. Of course, on Twitter at socialistdogmom. And your newsletter is at the-devils-advocates.ghost.io. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I did a great job setting that up. I did not know I could customize the URL, and now it is too late. But yeah, check out the newsletter. There should be more coming there soon. Like I said, I'm I'm hoping to tell some some different stories, not just this story over and over again, but you know, such as the timing. I'm telling this story right now, but I have some other interesting stuff coming up, I think, on the newsletter. So subscribe to the newsletter. The newsletter is free. You can pay if you want to. I would love that. But no, all of all of my content is is free, never paywalled, but it is how I support myself. So contribute if you feel so moved. You can check me out on Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky now. I don't know if anybody's on there. Same name. Yeah, I'm just extremely online, even if you just want to look at pictures of my dog. We always do. Well, (laughs) folks, that is our show. Andy, we'll be back next week with our Radiothon show. But just a reminder to listeners, if they want to support community radio right now, they could go to givenow.com.au, look up Yana Passaran and make a sneaky early donation and take some of the stress off next week's Radiothon. Please do. All right, folks, we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.